Iranian women are taking off their hijabs and burning them. So the foundation of the hijab in the Middle East, in general, and not just Iran, uh, goes back to the pre-Islamic period, where the Arab women did not observe the hijab. That marriage was quite lax um, in uh, pre-Islamic Arabia. Um, that a woman could have multiple male partners, just as a man might have multiple wow. female partners. Polygamy was not as uh, common as you think, although there's a lot of talk about it. We actually do have statistics, which is that, so when you see Ayatollah Khomeini emerging in 1963 against the Shah, against the white revolution, the two things that he singles out are land reform, and women's right to vote. <clears throat> and he says both of these are on Islam. But what happened is that the, you know, you talked about two cultures. Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore, really. It doesn't. No. You know, the big joke is nobody's virgin in Iran anymore because premarital. This is happening in Iran? Right, right. <laughs> um, so it's a very, and so it's so ridiculous that the government is insisting on the hijab in, in a world that has changed so much. Did you know that during the Shah's period, an implicit social contract, an unspoken deal of sorts, existed in Iran between the intellectuals and the general Iranian public, in which Iranian intellectuals were basically saying, let us educate your daughters and let them go to work. In return, we promise that they will remain loyal and obedient. But you see, when Iranian women became educated and started gaining independence, it was no longer feasible to simply tell them what to do or what to wear. But then came Ayatollah Khomeini and the 1979 revolution. Hey there, news peelers. Today is October 14, 2012. And this is Adele, the host of a History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. In her PBS program, Ms. Christian Amampour recently interviewed Ms. Shireen Abadi, who in 2003 was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her legal advocacy of democracy and human rights in Iran, especially for the rights of women and children. Ms. Abadi is the first female Nobel Peace Prize laureate from Iran, in fact, from the entire Islamic world. In 2009, Iran's regime froze her bank account and from her bank box confiscated her Nobel Peace Prize medal, along with her French Legion of Honor medal, her diploma, 
and other awards. Ms. Abadi was a lawyer and a judge in Iran and has 18 honorary doctorate degrees from universities around the world, including Loyola University Chicago, Williams College, and Brown University. In her interviews with Ms. Amanpour, Ms. Abadi said that while the hijab is an important issue, it is not the only issue. The real issue is that women are discriminated against in Iran. She explained that based on Iranian law, a man can have up to four wives. If an Iranian woman wants to travel, she would need her husband's permission to do so. What's more is that a man can stop his wife from working, and that the life of a woman is worth half the life of a man. For example, in Iranian courts of law, testimony of a man equals to that of two women. Another example is that in a lawsuit, such as, say, a car accident, a man will be awarded twice as much damages as a woman. Ms. Abadi believes that this time is different in Iran. The protests are widespread. Grandmothers are on the streets with their granddaughters, taking off their hijabs. She adds that total regime change is the only solution now. And she states that it is women who will open the gates to democracy in Iran. These protests started with the murder of Ms. Mahsa Amini by Iran's regime about a month ago. The issue was her hijab. Since then, there have been many other Mahsa Aminis in Iran, such as Nika Shah Karami, who was buried on her would-be 17th birthday. The Iranian regime denied her family the right to hold a funeral and later stole her corpse from her grave to prevent it from becoming a pilgrimage site. Her crime? Protesting against the regime and posting a story on Instagram to show that she had burned her headscarf. There's a chant that has become the slogan of protests in Iran, and I'll say it here. Zan Zendigi Azadi. Now, I'm not about to start a Farsi lesson, which is the language of Iran, but there's nothing exclusively Iranian about this chant anyway. In our country, the United States of America, we made the declaration with these words back in 1776. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Similar to us, Iranians are now making their own declaration. Zan Zendigi Azadi. These words speak of the unalienable rights of the Iranian people, that among them are life, Zendigi, liberty, Azadi, and the pursuit of happiness. In the case of Iranians, they literally seek happiness, the ability to sing, dance, listen to the music of their choice, watch the movies they want to watch, wear the clothes they want to wear, to live without the constant stress of the morality police. Iranians have added another word to their declaration, which, interestingly, is missing in our declaration. That word is Zan. It means woman, and it stands for equality. women's rights, and autonomy. So you see, the three words that brave Iranian men and women shout out in the streets of Iran are not words particular to Iran. They are universal words. They are American words. So perhaps it's time that more prominent American women and men who passionately advocate women's rights say these words out loud in public. Women, life, liberty. Zan Zendigi Azadi. To better understand the history of hijab in Iran, women's rights in Iran, 
their rights in marriage, the history of their right to vote, to education and to work, their right to family planning, to birth control, and to abortion. I spoke with Dr. Janet Afari. She's a professor of religious studies in UC Santa Barbara. She's the director of the Iranian Studies Initiative, and she's the chair of religion and modernity. She's the author of many books. I'll identify three of them here. First, the Iranian Constitutional Revolution, 1906 to 1911, Grassroots Democracy, Social Democracy, and the Origins of Feminism. Second, Sexual Politics in Modern Iran. And third, Iranian Romance in the Digital Age, From Arranged Marriage to White Marriage, Sex, Family, and Culture in the Middle East. To learn more about Dr. Afari, you can visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the link for her books, which are listed on her academic homepage. And I've also provided a link to Ms. Amonpour's interview with Ms. Abadi. So stay with me as Dr. Afari and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Afari, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Thank you very much for your invitation. I appreciate uh, being with you and look forward to our conversation. Historically speaking, in Iran, what's the foundation of the hijab? So the foundation of the hijab in the Middle East in general, not just Iran, uh, goes back to the pre-Islamic period. Pre-Islamic period. Interesting. Right. Okay. Hijab was a, a covering that was observed by uh, more well-to-do women. Uh, slaves did not uh, observe the hijab and lower class and working class women did not. So it was a status symbol. It was actually something that women aspired to because it suggested that a woman uh, was of a particular social class where she did not need to work, that there was a man, father, husband, brother, sons who were taking care of her. Uh, once you started working, oh, wow. mm-hmm. whether you were work, a peasant or a, a, a member of a tribal community, you observed a much more modified version of a hijab. So usually it was uh, some kind of a headscarf that women wore. Uh, the clothing usually was, um, you know, skirt or covering um the legs were oftentimes bare in fact um there were no socks and no stockings most women did not wear those it was only the upper classes who were able to therefore observe a hijab and then the more upper class you were so when you became a member of the royalty for example that's when you were completely covered up that's when you had the face hijab and so forth now it doesn't mean that in every period in Iranian history this was the case, but this is generally what we know from the hijab. And this become, remains the situation all the way to the beginning of the 20th century. So, for example, uh, we have evidence of the police arresting a woman, women in the street because a woman would be a prostitute and she was veiling. And this was a class marker. She wasn't supposed to be veiling. This was something that belonged to the upper classes of society. Oh, interesting. So. The woman was arrested because she was not in her class level, in her sort of stratum. She was not supposed to wear the veil. That's right. Almost everything in Iranian society 
you need to think about it in terms of class and hierarchical issues. Many of the issues that we talk about today, we will be talking about today, you'll see that it has a class dimension to it. So this is one of them. I'm, I'm almost loath to ask the following question because I know it probably requires a whole podcast on its own, but let me ask it if there's a brief version of it. I appreciate an explanation. So how did the hijab or whatever, I don't even want to use that term, that covering of women, which was class-based, become an Islamic thing? So Islam simply adopts um, the norms of the, as it becomes an empire, simply adopts the norms of the world around it. What we know actually from pre-Islamic uh, practices is that they didn't wear the hijab, with the Arab women did not observe the hijab, that marriage was quite lax um, in uh, pre-Islamic Arabia, um, that a woman could have multiple male partners, just as a man might have multiple wow. female partners. And marriage was, children ra- were raised with their family of the mother. Remember, Muhammad was raised by the family of his mother after his father died. He didn't go and live with his father's family. It was only after his mother died that he ended up living with his uncle, Abu Talib. So this was a common practice. Um, men traveled, went from city to city. They might have a kind of partner wife in each city, and the woman might have also multiple partners. What we think happened with Islam was that um, as Arabia adopted Islam and as it became gradually uh, expanded, it started to adopt the norms of the what was considered civilization of the time. So the Byzantium Empire, for example, the Persian Empire, where women did live a much more segregated life and secluded life. Um, where there were these great hierarchies between men and women. So as a, as a um, sort of sign of becoming more uh, a bigger civilization, they adopted the, the um, gender norms, if you will, of their time. And so what scholars actually think is that the notion of Zinam, which we think of it now as generally, we think of it as an extramarital relationship of a, of a woman, actually referred to the fact that women could have multiple kinds of partners, you know. And Aisha is, for example, quoted as saying... Aisha was... uh, Muhammad, right. Okay. That there used to be many different forms of marriage, she says, in pre-Islamic Arabia. So we think that Zina was referring to this type of relationship. And so what we have is the ending of essentially uh, <clears throat> um, the practice of having multiple male partners for women, but you keep, but it's kept for men. Yeah, 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 yeah. You mentioned that. In and then the other thing that happens is that um, in the pre-Islamic tradition, when men had multiple wives, they didn't keep them in the same place. Uh, but now they you mean different dwellings that that were in different cities, maybe even right. Um, there would be different cities probably because he would be traveling from one city to the other and he might be having multiple, if you think of it more like girlfriends, you know, partners uh-huh. there. Yeah. And now it becomes in Medina, this is um, what happens in Medina when the community is concentrated there, you start having the living of the women actually in the same location. Um, if you want people to look at it, the most recent 
really good work on it has been still still remains the work of Leila Ahmad, um, who's done some very good work on this period. But she bases herself on scholars of pre-Islamic uh, Middle That's uh, Dr. Leila Ahmad of Harvard Divinity yes, School. Yes, Leila yeah. Ahmad of Harvard, right? Um, let's fast forward to twenty to the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Um, itself is a vast conversation, uh, but I just, I'm wondering if you could share some highlights about what happens in Iran to the hijab from the beginning of the 20th century. So in the 19th century, late 19th century, somewhere in the middle of the 19th century to late 19th century, Iran is introduced to the modern world, modern European world. And this happens by Europeans traveling to Iran, but it also happens by Iranians traveling to Europe. And by this time, of course, Europe had much, was much more improved, was much more productive, was a greater civilization than what Iran had become uh, by the middle of the 19th century. And there's certain ways of living, um, modes of existence of the uh, Western world that really strikes them. Um, and so one of them is, for example, the lack of hijab. The Europeans were not are not wearing the hijab, for example, European women, or that there's far more interaction between men and women, um, unrelated men and women, for example, in European society. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. these things are now brought to Iran as a sign of civilization and modernity. So we now have another borrowing now this time that, okay, well, if you're an upper class person, you don't veil. Um, and so oh, it's the reverse of uh, Asian. You have the reverse, right? So upper class is upper class women who wear the most veiled, actually, because remember I said that in the royal family they were the most segregated. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you start to have actually um, the the Iranian women's movement starts in the upper classes and the middle classes, and these are women who are chafing under the segregations spatial segregation, if you will, that they have, you know, that they have to be accompanied by a man when they come out, that they have to wear the veil. So these things suddenly become very big issues. But education also becomes a really big issue. Before we get into education, there's a there's a there's a period, a development in Iran's early history in the 20th century. Um, I think it's in the early 1930s, uh, you can correct me uh, if you would please, in which the founding uh, king of the Pahlavi dynasty, Reza Shah, uh, institutes unveiling of women. Um, was this something that, w- that, that incorporated the women's will? Was this something that forced, how was this received? The time we're talking is the 1930s. Reza Shah is supported in um, his um, agenda by a generation of constitutionalists. These are people who started the Iranian constitutional revolution of 1906 and had wanted to reform the country very much. And they were unable to do that in 1906, 1911 because of Western intervention. So, you know, Russia intervened, actually occupied the country. Russian forces were inside Iran until um, the Russian Revolution of 1917, uh, because the Iran had um, a constitution, had formed a constitution, had formed a parliament, and it was really moving towards a much more democratic society. And the king of Iran at the time, the Khajars don't like it, but so do the European powers, because 
um, you know, if you have a parliamentary system, it's not that easy to get concessions, economic concessions anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when Reza Khan comes to power, it's really after the Russian Revolution of 1917, when a whole lot of things have changed in the region. There's a lot of interest in communism. And so the Western powers decide that, okay, they can't be, um, particularly I'm talking about Great Britain, of course, um, decides that it can't be so strict about Iran, but it has to allow a certain level of reform and better to do these reforms um, in a manner and through a person that, um, you know, is not hostile towards them. So these are the circumstances that um, Reza Khan comes uh, and assumes power. He's, of course, quite a capable man. But the constitutionalists eventually decide to support him because they decide that a lot of what they want to do in terms of modernizing the country that he was he would do. He wasn't going to he they realized later on that he's not going to uh, embark on democratization in Iran, but that he would do modernization. And so the constitutionalists are supporting him. And one of the agendas of the constitutionalists was women's education, which the Pahlavi regime also wholeheartedly agrees to. Um, so Reza Shah and goes to Turkey. Uh, his, his plan is to go to Europe. Uh, but he goes here. He's very impressed with Kamal Ataturk and what he's done there. So and the Ottoman Empire has ended <clears throat> there. We have the uh, Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman yeah. Empire, post-World yeah. War One. And Kemal Ataturk has abolished both the caliphate and the sultanate. So he's a, a, a president. There's no longer a caliph and there's no longer a sultan. In, and the laws of the Sharia are put aside. And one of the things that are happening in Turkey are women have also unveiled. And so Reza Shah becomes very impressed with that. And he says, I don't need to go to Europe. I've seen enough. back. <laughs> <laughs> And he decides that as hard as it is for him to order unveiling, because it meant also his wife and <clears throat> you know he's a very traditional man and his daughters, that he's going to do it, starting with his own family. And so when the order of to unveil is given, the reaction is very mixed. So for, as I said, the vast majority of the country, unveiling really means that they're not told to take off the scarf that they wear um but when they come to the city which is what they end up doing when they come to the city in the city the bazaar classes the clerical classes are extremely upset this is a real violation of protocol of demeanor of rules of modesty uh but the what we call the new middle classes <clears throat> the new people, middle classes okay right the new middle classes are people who are joining the middle class by virtue of the reforms of the constitutional and the Pahlavi era. So they've gone to school, they become, let's say, accountants or dentists or doctors or pharmacists. They've traveled abroad, teachers primarily. Uh, these are what we call the new middle classes. They're, uh, they've reached a new middle, a middle class status, not by virtue of land owning or being connected to the clerical establishment, which are connected to each other, but by virtue of their education. And so the new middle classes embrace this. Uh, and to them, it's um, it's something wonderful and you know, it's a sign of modernity. And so women in these classes, so we have very, very different stories from this period. Yeah. So my, my grandmother was like a member of that 
you know, um, new middle class because my grandfather had just become, um, I think he got a job in a bank, in a, in a British bank or something. So that was a big deal. Um, and she, she unveiled and when he got her new clothes, she happily wore it. But then there were many people who were that very didn't. upset and the women stayed home and um, the, the husbands eventually started building ha- uh, bathhouses inside the home so that the one reason that the woman would actually have to leave the house go to a public bathhouse. Oh, so keep so him at home. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have one question to ask you about the 1979 revolution uh, in the minute we have left of this segment. And it's a very sort of a narrow, fine point here. I recall that after the 1979 revolution, whenever it was, 1980, 1981, uh, there were demonstrations, women demonstrated in Iran against the hijab, the mandate of hijab. Uh, Were these women, had these women participated in the revolution and now it flipped on them? Right, so it's exactly March of 1979. Oh, okay. It's just a few weeks after Ayatollah Khomeini has come back to the country. Oh, that fast. Okay, great. And the first thing that he's done is that he has abolished what was known as the Family Protection Law, a series of laws that have been ratified between 1968 and 1975, which gave women certain rights, the right to divorce, the right to stop their husbands from taking a second wife, the right to child custody, things like that. First thing that Khomeini does is that he abolishes that. Uh, And then the next thing right away he says is that, well, women can't be going to work nude, which is his definition. (laughs) Yeah, as if they were doing that, yeah. And so women, uh, yes, many, many of the women who participated in that historic demonstration, it was March 8th, it was International Women's Day, Okay. Um, are actually women who had participated in the revolution. Uh, and so they're just, you know, so the slogans were like, at the dawn of freedom, we have our freedom. And, you know, we didn't make a revolution to march back and things like that. Um, all right. And obviously, um, they're, they're, they were not, um, they did not get to have their day and we're still living the impacts of that now. We'll be back after a short break to talk about women's rights and marriage in Iran. We'll be right back. Who are Ukrainians? Seriously, how much do we know about their language and religions, including American evangelism that has spread there since their independence from USSR? Or what do we know about Kievan Rus, this historic Russian-Ukrainian state? Professor Warner explains all of this in Season 2, Episode 5. And who is Mr. Putin, the person? What is his personality like? Here's something that I bet you didn't know. That at one point, the KGB assessed a character flaw in Mr. Putin. Can you guess what it is? That he was prone to take unwarranted risks. Hmm. Professor Stoner of Stanford University talks about Mr. Putin in Season 2, Episode 9, which is our next episode. For your convenience, we have also organized these episodes about Ukraine into a podcast series. Just click the Post-Soviet States Podcast Series link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while there, check out my conversation with Professor Tutomlu, who talks about her homeland, Kazakhstan, after Russia sent troops there. 
Interestingly, Mr. Putin made a statement about Kazakhstan that is disturbingly similar to what he said about Ukraine, that Kazakhstan is an artificial state. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Professor Stone. Dr. Afari, as I reviewed your publications, such as your book titled Sexual Politics and Modern Iran, I realized that one fascinating way to talk about the evolution and devolution of women's rights in Iran is to track their rights and history of their rights sort of alongside the context of marriage. You already alluded to that. Um, so let's get into it. What was marriage like in Iran, let's say, in early 20th century, and how did it change? So let me first say that it's not just Iran where marriage and its evolution is so important. Look at the United States. Look and see how important issues like the change in the institution of marriage. Right now, the question of birth control, yep, yep. Uh, the move against abortion, um, gay marriage for a long time, and now possibly some kind of revocation of it if the Supreme Court has its way in the United States. Who knows? As you can see, these have been central issues in the politics of the United States going back at least 40 years. Yeah. So the whole world is really experiencing this issue, which is that the world has changed dramatically. And many of the institutions and privileges that existed in pre-modern world and were assumed are no longer there. And so you have sort of a backlash to that. So going to Iran, in the middle of the 19th century, by the beginning of the 20th century, marriage was universal. Everybody got married. You didn't marry, you were tall or short, uh, slim or thin, or overweight, or disabled, <laughs> or poor or rich, you got married. And your marriage, the person's marriage, was something that your parents arranged. It was probably the biggest responsibility of your parents um, to get you married. When and you say everybody got married, you really mean that? Like everybody I really mean everybody got married. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, and so the the job of your, you know, the son, the son's mother was, he got to an appropriate age. They would start looking around. The mother of the girl would make herself available. The bathhouses were usually the place where the selection was made. Because remember, the selection <laughs> is made between families. Marriage is a family affair. Now, people usually ask me, did marriage involve love? Well, occasionally, maybe love did develop in marriage after marriage. But love was not at all a precondition of marriage. In fact, if I may interrupt you, I'm scratching my head here because, you know, I was born in Iran, as you know, and there's so many love stories, Iran, you know, love poems and everything. And here you are telling me marriage had nothing to do with love. Right. Because our love poetry, we, we grow up in this classical love poetry, but our love poetry is not about heterosexual love. Our love poetry is going back. No, going back to the 10th to 14th century, it's about homoerotic love. It's about <laughs> a love that was experienced in Sufi monasteries. Um, and most of our great poets, uh, Rumi, Hafiz, Sadi, and so forth, Jomi, they were all came, coming out of that tradition. Uh, I've written quite extensively about this. I don't know if you have time for me to talk about that, but marriage was marriage and love was love. Oh marriage boy. was something okay. that you did for procreation, 
and also for getting in-laws. It connected, it meant that you got established and connected to another family. It was a business transaction. You had children out of that, but you also got in-laws out of that. So what rights in that situation did this young woman, how old would the women be in that situation? So legally, by the Sharia, she could be married at age nine. Most women got married more like 12. What, uh, what, what period are we talking about? Is this 1910s, 1920s? I mean, uh, early 20th century, both of my grandmothers were married when they were 12 or 13. Okay. All right. And the men legally could marry from the age of 15, but they usually married a little later. Not that much later, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, this marriage was arranged between the families. They would decide who's an appropriate family. Again, going back to social hierarchies, those are very, very important to find an appropriate family <clears throat> and to arrange this marriage, right? Uh, and so the purpose of it was the mother-in-law got herself a daughter-in-law or a series of daughters-in-law who then helped out in the house. And of course, there were children from this union. Love was something that you developed outside marriage. Love was more a matter of companionship, was um, intimate connections with another. Love was could be platonic. A lot of the love we talk about could be platonic or it could be sexual. It could be both of those loves. Love. You mean extramarital time, affairs? Well, it started even before you were married. So it could be... Um, a love that you loved, a man loved another man, for example, or had attraction to another man, for example. Um, and he would get married. And there was no contradiction here between getting married and being in love. Remember, women were in the cities were segregated. Now, you had more of a chance of a love relationship happening in the rural and provinces because the women were not veiled and they were not segregated. So you had a situation where, for example, peasants would be growing up together and you had more of a chance there because there were also no remember no financial arrangements when you're a poor peasant and your son wants to marry this girl who's your neighbor um, it is not a question of how much money you bring in and how much money they bring in it's a very simple transaction between two families so there's actually a bigger chance of having a love marriage in the provinces Interesting. Uh, in the rural community, within the tribal community, in the city and among the elite. Um, in 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 this period, 1910s, 1920s, I guess early 1930s, was polygamy practiced in Iran? Polygamy was not as uh, common as you think, although there's a lot of talk about it. We actually do have statistics, which is that very rarely a man would have more than two wives, and not everybody. Polygamy was something that you did when you became an upper-class person. It was a sign. It was more like a guy having two cars, like today. Oh, boy. Like having two houses. It was a sign, uh, giving the signature that, you know, giving the, um, telling everybody in the world, basically, in your community. I've made it. That I've made it. Because it involved... Um, a marriage, the marriage ceremony, it involved money, it involved the mahriya, for example, and involved offsprings from this second marriage. A man could have access, um, a well to, uh, any man could have pretty much access with some discretionary fund 
to what we call temporary marriage. So there was no reason to get another formal wife. Are you talking about the institution of Sire? Yeah, right. Yeah. right. Okay. So the institution of Sire made it possible for a butcher or grocer or baker to have access to a concubine, whether for a few hours, for a few days when traveling, or even maybe he's a little bit more well-off in the same city. Um, he didn't have to take a second wife. See what I mean? I see. Second uh, wife is something which is far more upper class thing. As I understand it, and I don't want to go on a tangent, but just one point about Sireh. As I understand it, any children from that uh, relationship had some rights towards from the father. Is that right? So they were not so bastards. As long as the father recognized him. Oh, I see. As long yeah. as the father. So in an age when there was no DNA testing, if the burden was on the poor on the woman to prove this to prove that this this mm -hmm. was the father right but um, if he did recognize them whether it was a sire or in families that had slaves and remember slavery did we still had slaves around in the first decade of the 20th century children from those unions if the father again if the father recognized them would be legitimate heirs we had slaves in Iran in the first decade of the 20th century. Yeah, we still had slaves in Iran first decade. Not that many. I think the numbers were about closer to 25,000 to 50,000. Were these for like domestic households or? Uh... By this time, they were mostly domestic. We had black slaves and white slaves. We had white slaves that um, during uh, military raids to the South Caucasus from Georgia, uh, for example, yeah. uh, were enslaved and then brought into the country. And we had black slaves who uh, go back to East Africa, basically. And many of them were purchased on the way back. When people went to Hajj, for example, um, there were slave markets there. And Hajj being pilgrimage for Muslims. Yeah, in Mecca. Mecca. Yeah. You could buy yourself a Hajj uh, a slave and a slave or two and, and bring them with you. And we also have slave markets in the Persian Gulf area, um, very much like the things you see in America with the slave market where people would, uh, you know, un undress and then you would see their body and you would decide. But remember, these were, again, status markers. You didn't buy a slave for work. You really bought it as a prestige by this time that I'm talking about, the 19th century. 17th century is different. 17th yeah. and 18th century, they were actually employed and worked. By this period, it's a sign of very prestige. Um, when was slavery outlawed in Iran? Officially, it's outlawed in 1928. But wow. you start to, to see um, movements against it in the constitutional period. Uh, although the constitutional revolution never formally abolished slavery, um, which they could have. But they decided not. They, they it it didn't come up actually. So it must have been a very controversial issue. Let's move forward to the Shah's uh, Muhammad Reza Shah's White Revolution. Um, so now we're moving to the 1960s. Exactly. Um, this has come up in so many of your talks and publications, and also I've come across it with other scholars. Um, how did this impact women's rights? Um, you know, divorce, marriage, child custody. So, um, as I said, when Iran was exposed to modernity, 
there's this understanding among the intelligentsia that a whole lot of things have to change. Um, I talk about it as a paradigm shift on many, many levels. I mean, even basic things have to change. You know, <clears throat> for example, you went to work based on when the sun was coming up and when you had to pray. These are a prayer, for example, defined your day. Mm -hmm. uh, but now the clock defined your day. So whether it was cook clock or whether it was a fact that public bathhouses turned out to be a place of um, bacteria, so you have to move away from that. So many things have to change in this world. And so the intelligentsia started pushing to reform. Many of the laws of Iran were, of course, based on the Sharia. So gradually they were able to reform the laws, for example, laws dealing with trade, for example, um, laws uh, regarding crime. Gradually these laws started to shift and started to become more modern. But they kept Rather, they didn't touch very much, I would say, the laws that dealt with family and marriage, because this was the most explosive of them all. Most explosive. Interesting. Yes, okay. it was the most explosive because the society was very invested. In, so the hijab, for example, removal of hijab, probably the most controversial thing that Reza Shah did, even though I think many other things that he did were even more controversial, but this <laughs> yeah. was most controversial. So they didn't touch, they changed the age of marriage. You know, the formal age of marriage became 13 for girls and became 15. And then by the second Pahlavi area, the time we're talking about, it became 18 for girls, for example. Mm -hmm. But the, <clears throat> the laws regarding divorce and marriage had not changed. So Reza Shah did not touch the institution of polygamy, did not touch Sire, for example, temporary marriage or divorce. So these, finally, now you have a generation of women. They've gone to high school. Many of them have gone to college. Many of them are working. And a number of them are going to Iran, inside Iran's parliament. And they start campaigning for reform of family law. And this becomes, again, the most controversial thing that Muhammad Reza does. You know, <clears throat> it's around this, uh, which is one of the tenets of the white revolution, and land reform. And land reform, of course, the reason their clerics are very upset about it and also the bazaar merchants is that they're landowners. And what they're worried <laughs> about is that if the Shah is giving away his own land, tomorrow he's going to come after their land. He's going to say everybody should give up their land. So when you see Ayatollah Khomeini emerging in 1963, against the Shah, against the white revolution, the two things that he singles out are land reform and women's right to vote. <clears throat> and he says both of these are on Islam. We'll be back after a short break to talk more about women's rights during the Shah's era. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right, for the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. <laughs> 
And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Afari, in one of your talks, you explained that there was an implicit agreement between Iranian intellectuals and the Iranian public uh, regarding women's education. Uh, we alluded to this in the pre previous segment, and this is a really fascinating story. Um, please tell us about this agreement and what happens to it. So Iranian society at the beginning of 20th century, you shouldn't compare it really to Europe. If you want to see where Iranian society was, you should compare it to South Caucasus, Turkey, for example, or Egypt, and was far more conservative in terms of gender relationships. You know, yet um, she Muslim uh, merchants building fabulous schools for girls, for example, in places like Baku, Tbilisi, in Turkey, long ago, you had had uh, <clears throat> schools for midwives, even not just elementary school and high school, but schools for midwives, for example. You had publications, women's publications. So in Egypt, in Iran, nothing. You had not even basic education. The only places where you could get a basic education for a girl, even for boys, was in the seminaries, religious seminaries. And for girls, it would be um, the missionaries who come to Iran and opened up some schools. That was it. So it's a very, very conservative. A lot of Christian missionaries, right? Right. Christian yeah. Presbyterians, primar primarily from the United States. Okay. So that's why touching anything that has to do with women and gender is just so explosive in Iranian society. So what I'm saying is that the intellectuals, they don't quite come across and say it like this, but they're basically saying, let us we need to reform our gender relations, they say. And the reason we have to do that is because we have to have boys who can keep up with the modern world. And who raises boys? Mothers. So in order to have educated boys who can compete in our modern world, we have to educate the mothers. So let us educate the women. And then eventually becomes, let them also go to work. But then we promise you that they will remain obedient daughters and wives. And that that part of the relationship isn't going to change. And so they're, they're like making a deal here. They're making a deal. Yeah, they're making a deal. That they're going to be, be remain, the, you know, the word Najib, modest uh, and obedient and so forth. And so it's with that kind of a promise, basically, that families allow their daughters very grudgingly to go to elementary school. By families, you mean middle-class families? Initially, middle-class families, gradually also more in the provinces. But remember, literacy rates for women were still very low at the time of the revolution. There are 35% of rural women were, were literate. So there's a lot of resistance to it also in the rural community. But gradually in the cities and urban communities, women are allowed to go to elementary school, high school, and in some families, even college, um, they become midwives and they start getting jobs. Again, all with the assumption that this is not going to change the general fabric of gender relations in society. But when you send the woman to school and she becomes more educated, she wants to have a say in her marriage. And if you still marry her the traditional way and the marriage doesn't work out, then she wants to get out. 
because she knows, she understands that the possibility of divorce exists. And if she gets a divorce, then where does she live? In the old tradition, there, there was, of course, divorce, but the divorced woman would come back, either immediately get married and become the second wife of somebody, a sire wife of someone, or she'd become like a nanny to her brother and raise her brother's children. But, you know, a more modern woman who's maybe working as a secretary doesn't want to do that. She doesn't want to become a second wife. She doesn't want to become a nanny to her brother's children. <clears throat> she wants to have her own life. So sometime in the 70s, Iran started to have, um, you know, the appearance of these more modern women who dress more modern way. Um, you know, even many, many wore the, you know, mini, mini skirt. Um, who maybe had an apartment, who were going to work and coming back without a male chaperone. And this was quite explosive at the time. And I show and, in my sexual politics book some of the cartoons from that period. And this is right around uh, a little bit after, I guess, the sexual revolution that was occurring in the West, in Europe and the US, right? So this coincides with the sexual revolution. And what happens is that um, when now you have television, right? And you have movies also. So mm -hmm. everything that's happening on the streets of the West, a feminist movement, and then the gay movement, all of that is now um, rebroadcast back to Iran. And the Iranian society starts panicking <laughs> because they had followed the West, you know, uh, in terms of what was the appropriate behavior of women and Western women were going to elementary school and high school and college and getting jobs and becoming, you know, doctors and professors and accomplished people. But they were not, you know, uh, uh, using joint and they were not having sex out of marriage and not certainly not to the Iranian and Middle Eastern viewer. Um, these things certainly did not happen. And now they see that, oh, my God, this is where we're going to end up. So our women are going to become like this. Um, and also it's the rise of the gay movement, which. In Iran. No, it's the rise of the gay movement in the West. as oh, okay. a movement. Yeah. And in Iran, as I said, you have had this tradition of covert homosexuality, covert, semi-covert homosexuality, men were keeping boy concubines, but all of that had died out or rather had gone underground by the 1930s because all that became unacceptable modern behavior. So to the Iranian, there are two things happening in the West that are simply immoral. And one of them is that they think that Westerners are reviving the tradition of male concubinage, um, which they had think they had gotten rid of. And, you know, they're actually even talking about it so openly and thinking it's it's an acceptable way of living and, an, and a replacement for marriage. Really, that was the, the whole point of a gay marriage, gay relationship is that gay men don't get married in a conventional way. You know, they don't have a heterosexual marriage and also have a gay relationship. They're renouncing a gay a heterosexual marriage. So that's really was a very big deal. And then second one was uh, the feminist movement, the second wave feminist movement, and what we call the sexual revolution in the West. And so these are 
really two things. And you don't have to go too far. You could just look at the writings of Ali Shariati, for example, who keeps talking about these issues as examples of depravity that is going on in the West. I want to share a little sort of a anecdote uh, from my own personal memory. Uh, and you can correct me if sort of my childhood memory is exaggerating some of these. I recall seeing uh, urban unveiled women and uh, their families, let's say in Tehran. And then you would also see in Tehran newly arrived families from villages with their veiled you know, mothers, daughters, sisters, what have you. And from a little boy's perspective, it was almost like the meeting of two different cultures. They were really, really different. Yeah. Am I, is this, is this an over-exaggeration of no, what I saw? No, not at all. In fact, Nikki Ketty called it two cultures. Well, who called Hattie, it? I'm sorry, who's this? Nikki Ketty, Professor Nikki Ketty. Okay. Uh, called it, who was in Iran and studied Iran. He called Iran a society of two cultures. Um in which the urban middle classes were living an entirely different life. And remember, when the rural woman came to the city, she actually became stricter. That is, her husband wanted her to be stricter. So she may never have worn that black veil back in the rural community, but she would very wear it in the city. Her life would be far more segregated because her husband would be really worried about this, you know, radical, if you will. <laughs> you know, Iran, urban Iranian society. So yeah, the, the contradiction would actually be even uh, more than they actually were. Exaggerate versus you may not see that in the provinces or right, the villages. Right. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the right to vote. When did Iranian women begin to demand for this right? So when the idea of a white revolution, oh, when they start to... When Demand we, for it, yeah. Actually yeah. have the, you know, be bold enough to say we want to vote. So the first people who demand the right to vote are actually men for women. Oh, and interesting. It's, okay. it's raised in the Iranian constitutional revolution. And so we're going back to 1905 a, to 1910. 1911, yeah. yeah. It becomes a big joke, actually. It's like, wow, you know, giving the right to vote to women. Who has ever heard of that? <laughs> um, the serious one is um, the 1940s and 50s. So Iran had a very large communist party. Uh, it was known as the Party, which is formed in the 1940s, um, in the middle of World War II. And the um, communist party gains lots and lots of um, students, uh, high school students, particularly college students and, and workers also. And women join the Communist Party also, become sympathizers. The Communist Party is the first place where you have coming together of Muslims and non-Muslims, Baha'is and Zoroastrians and Jews and Christians and Muslims and Shis and Sunnis together. You know, oh, wow. That's they a... were all segregated, basically. Yeah. So live, live segregated lives. And the party brings them closer to each other. Uh, in fact, if anything, I would say the, the greatest accomplishment of the Com Communist Party of Iran has nothing to do with communism, but it has something to do with reintegrating Iran, ending segregation in so many ways. That's really interesting. Okay. So, <clears throat> so it, they're the ones uh, who raise the question of uh, women's right to vote. And uh, they do it after, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was a very short period, 45, when Azerbaijan the region that had been um, occupied by the Soviet Union, the Soviets wouldn't leave. 
and Azerbaijan declared itself an autonomous region. My father has told me about that. Okay. And yeah. so Kurdistan. And uh, autonomous Azerbaijan was the first place in the country where women got the right to vote. So this is 1946? 45, 45, uh, early 40, just before 46, before it's closed down. Yeah. So that happens there. And so that becomes the inspiration for the Communist Party of Iran, the to the party to then push for it. It becomes a big issue during the prime ministership of Mohammad Mossadegh, and he's sympathetic towards it. Uh, but it becomes a really galvanizing issue. The merchants of the bazaar and the clerks once again rally against it. And, you know, Mossadegh was fighting for so many things. He was fighting for nationalization of oil, he was fighting for democracy. This was just one too many things. So he drops it. So this is so in the, the 1950s, okay? The early 50s, which is okay. when it comes up, 51, after 51, 52. Uh, and then again, it comes up a decade later now when Mohammad Azusha says, okay, you wanted a revolution? Instead of a red revolution, I'll give you a white revolution. Meaning, So instead of a communist revolution, I'll give you my revolution, which is a white revolution. Right, which is white, which means it's bloodless, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And instead of a communist one also, and one of the planks, initially the right to vote for women is not part of it, but the women start now pushing and insisting that, you know, you should include also the right to vote for women, and he agrees. And that's how women get the right to vote. In one of your writings, and I, I think it's in one of your writings, it is, um, there's an interesting line that you said. After some time, I guess, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was not a leader of Iran back then in the 1960s, he condones the right to vote for women, but he condemns the right for them to be elected into office. Do I, do, did I get so that right? later. So initially... Oh, he opposes both the right okay. to be elected and the right to elect. And so uh, no right to vote for women, as well as, of course, obviously no right to be elected in um, parliament, for example, representation in parliament. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's around the time of the Iranian revolution that he changes his mind. Really, Oh, so not in the 60s. Significant numbers of women uh, who are Islamist women who have joined his movement and it helps him now to actually institutionalize the Islamic revolution by allowing women both to vote and to also be elected to parliament. I see. I see. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Afari as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Afari, from the Constitutional Revolution to the 1979 Revolution, Iranian society has gone through so many dramatic changes and, and rather quickly. We went to, through some of the timeline, you and I. Um, and some of these dramatic changes, are, of course, are continuing after the 1979 revolution. So how does all of this tumult, if you will, um, inform us about Iran's modern history? What, what's the impact of all of this? The impact was the explosion of 1979 revolution. I've never believed that the 1979 revolution was just 
an anti-imperialist revolution, as a lot of people on the left said. I didn't believe it at the time. I don't, I've never believed it since. It was a reaction in part, a significant part. It wasn't just a reaction to the 1953 coup. That was a very, very important part of it. That's a, that was a CIA coup that removed uh, Dr. Mossad, the whom you were that's talking correct, about. Right. Yes. And that's always given as the only reason for the revolution. But it was not. It was one of the reasons for the revolution. It didn't have to become an Islamist movement after that. If it was only about the Mossadegh coup, if it was only about the fact that the CIA had carried out a coup and overthrown Mossadegh, then of course the National Front should have become new leaders of the country. And the National Front, people like Bazargan, who was working for Mossadegh, uh, would have been uh, Bakhtiar, for example. These were the people who had continued the legacy of Mossadegh, and they should have been the legitimate continuators of that movement. And they were, and they didn't want to institute an Islamic government. They right? certainly did not want to. Yes, yes. right. Um, so the reason that we ended up with an Islamist movement, which also gained considerable public support, um, is because the revolution also included a reaction to a lot of the changes that modernity had brought about. And on top of that, I would include changes in gender relationships. So you're thinking that, well, let me ask it this way. Do you think these, these huge social changes in and of themselves could have caused some sort of revolution in Iran? I think they were the spark, most certainly. Uh, but also, let me add on a more optimistic note, which is that Iranian society today is a very different society than it was over 40 years ago. You have uh, families are much smaller. Uh, women are highly educated. Uh, companionate marriage has become a much more acceptable fact of life. That means marriage for love? A marriage in which there's greater companionship between men and women, mm -hmm. and even marriage for love. We've done some studies at UCSB with my colleague Roger Friedland and Maria Charles that shows that actually marriage for love is becoming far more important in the region, um, throughout the region also. So the Middle East is changing. Um, the need for women's work is becoming much more pronounced. So it's not that Iranian society of over 40 years ago. So the conditions are there to have a more democratic Iranian society. Um, I want to go back to um, an earlier period, and I'll do it in this way. Um, I tremendously enjoy reading your book that is titled The Iranian Constitutional Revolution, 1906-1911, Grassroots Democracy, Social Democracy, and the Origins of Feminism. It's the last part of your book's title that I want to speak with you about. And um, going back to that era, what I want to know, and you know, coming forward in the 20th century, what I want to know is, did Iranian women use the word feminism with regard to their movement? So the word feminism, the use of the word feminism is very new. It started in the 1990s. There was a lot of back and forth in the journal Zanon as to whether the term should be used or not be used. People started to give suggestions, maybe zanonegi, womanhood, something like that. But in the end, you know, feminism is a very powerful concept and it has become accepted globally. Um, and so, yeah, it is accepted 
Um, I would like to call the, the movement we're seeing in Iran is a remarkable movement today, you know, for unveiling. Um, it's a movement for women's rights, you know. Of course, I'm yeah. hoping that it becomes much more of a feminist movement as we go along. Um, but at this point, I'm absolutely delighted to see that it is a movement for women's rights, the right to wear what they wish. And also, really, it's it's a movement against um, the draconian laws of the Islamic Republic. One area we haven't touched on, and I just want to say, is that just in the last year, the Islamic Republic has really gone beyond what it had done before. You know, they, they controlled women's movements, women's um, uh in, you know, involvement in the public sphere and you have to wear the hijab and they intruded people's parties, but they didn't really ever get involved in sex. And to the extent that they did get involved was actually in a positive way because in the 1880s and 90s, they had a campaign for smaller families. So there were sex education classes in Iran, um, there were, uh, remember, a part of the revolution, people who made the revolution, whether Islamist or not, were very influenced by leftist ideas. Remember, I talked about the big communist party of Iran. Yeah, yeah. So those yeah. ideas didn't die out. They still were there, yeah, even if people call themselves Muslim and Islamist or something. And they put in practice uh, a lot of changes. And so, you know, family planning, uh, uh, and abortion became legal, for example. Abortion birth legal in Iran? Yeah, up to four months, yeah. Okay. Birth control became free and commonly available. Vasectomy became free, and families were encouraged to have smaller... Dr. Afari, that's so progressive. It was so progressive, they got some awards from UNESCO, actually, for it. Seriously? What happened, wow. what happened was that then the birth rate really dropped. You know, so from about having about six children, uh, it dropped down to like 1.7. And now it's back up to like maybe two, 2.1, something okay. like that. And the government then panicked because it realized that it's just not going to have a young enough population, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for all it's not just to take care of the elderly, but also for its imperialist agenda of, you know, from Yemen all the way to <laughs> Lebanon. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so what they did last year was that they put in place a really draconian set of laws regulating uh, pregnancy. So if you're pregnant now and you go see a doctor, the doctor is supposed to actually follow through and make sure that you carry that pregnancy to term. Abortion is illegal. Vasectomy is illegal. Oh, birth wow. control. They've con they've collected all the um, means of birth control that that are available to them. Um, um, I mean, Dr. Afar, are these laws that are passed by Iran's majlis, the parliament, or are these just sort of fiats by by acts of fi by, the, by the, the leader? supreme leader says it, and then it's passed by the majlis? I see. Right, and so what that has done is that you know, um, a husband and wife really no longer can be control have control over their family planning because if condoms are not available. If she can't have an abortion, they have two children, they don't want to have any more children. Um, if he can't have a vasectomy, um, they're in a really difficult situation, extremely difficult situation. And this has really angered the population. I bet. I in some ways that uh, it's, you know, people don't talk about it because it's not really quite well known how dramatic this is and this has happened. You know, 
we've been watching images, uh, video clips of Iran, and we talk about people. And now you talked about contraception and family planning. One of the things that uh, popped into my head is the people, like these revolutionary guards or, or the clergy, the mullahs, the ayatollahs, they themselves have wives and daughters and sons um, that that go to college or whatever in the streets with other people. I'm using the word people in quotation marks. Are they also ticked off about all of this? I mean, like, you know, a 40-year-old, a 30-year-old son of a clergy falls in love with a woman in, in you know, in, in, in the university and they want to have just two kids. Now they're impacted with this. Oh, you know, the rich always has different rules for itself. <laughs> the princelings have different uh, policies. Always. I mean, in America, you know, I mean, we had so we heard so many stories about Trump sending his his, I would say, concubines to have abortions, you know. <laughs> yeah, and now he's anti-abortion, right? Right, now he's anti-abortion. So the rich and the powerful always have different rules and you know, they they make it possible for their own families to have access to things that other people, it's a political ploy. The, the, the reason I'm asking that is that has this level of intrusiveness spread out, widened discontent even amongst yes, their it own? it has, rest? right, yeah. right. What happened is that the, you know, you talked about two cultures. Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore, really. It doesn't. No. How about the villagers or the provincial? Well, uh, who do you think are these pastorans? Uh, who do you think is, is recruited? Uh, pastorans, you mean revolutionary guards. Right. The yeah. pastorans, the Basij, they're all recruited from the rural communities, from the urban poor communities. Um, and the veterans of the, of the Iran-Iraq war, who were, again, from the very poor sectors of society, got many, many veteran benefits. You know, they went... They were allowed to go to school, uh, to college, to get PhDs, and the government paid for everything. They had pensions. They had, they had many, many privileges. They've, of course, dramatically been reduced now, which is why people are so angry. But in the 80s and the 90s, those benefits that war veterans got, got very similar to GI bills in the United States that, you know, helped lift the whole population out of poverty. Those types of things really helped lift the whole population out of poverty in Iran. And uh, it used to be that, you know, urban women didn't veil and they traveled and they went to college. Well, just a rural woman might do all those things. I mean, not, not the veiling, no. but she'll come to the city. She'll go uh, live in a dormitory. She uh, will have a boyfriend. Um, will have a boyfriend? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is quite, quite common. And quite, you should look at the book we published, Iranian Romance in the Digital Age. And it's I saw that on your digital. website. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And there's a beautiful article there by Maserat Amir Ibrahimi, who talks about um, dating in uh, college age and, you know, people living together. Um, I'm sorry, did you say people living together in Iran? Yeah, people living Out of wedlock. Yes. And it's called white marriage. Oh wow! I feel yeah. so um, so out of touch here with Iranian <laughs> culture and what's happening out there. People live together. Rural girl comes to the city, gets admitted to the university. She finishes her university education. She doesn't want to go back to her rural town. She stays in the big city and she finds a boyfriend. Initially, they meet maybe in a friend's house. Then gradually, when she gets a job or he gets a job, they get an apartment. Now, they're careful in the sense of 
not always leaving the apartment together and coming back together. But of course, the neighbors know and they don't say anything. So um, and just in closing, this just is proof that the whole veiling thing in Iran is just so outdated, especially Absolutely for- outdated. It's just <laughs> ridiculous. No one right. is doing this. We have anyway. another article about um, Hyman repair operations and virginity, which is again- you know, the big joke is nobody's virgin in Iran anymore because premarital. This is happening in Iran? Right, right. <laughs> um, so it's a very, and so it's so ridiculous that the government is insisting on the hijab in, in a world that has changed so much. Oh, boy. Dr. Afari, thank you so much for educating me. I hope I didn't shock you too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm shocked. I just realized how little I know about uh, modern <laughs> Iran. Uh, Dr. Afari, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Ali. I appreciate it. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also. Unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>